Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, I sat down and spoke with Rich Rines, an initial contributor at Cordao. Cordao is comprised of a global group of developers building a Bitcoin hash powered and EVM compatible blockchain with the goal to onboard the next 1 billion users. The core mainnet launched in early 2023 and is also ranked among the largest smart contract interactions on the Ethereum network. In this conversation, Rich and I discuss building the foundations for a community, simplifying the onboarding process to bring in 1 billion users, how the Satoshi Plus consensus protocol was designed to favor decentralization, the multi-chain thesis and interoperability, CoreDAO's call for developers, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Rich, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today we are joined by Rich Rines, a contributor for the Cordao, initial contributor. And Cordao is a Bitcoin hash powered and EVM compatible blockchain with the ambitious goal to onboard the next billion users. How are you doing today, Rich? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Excited to chat. Yeah, very excited to chat. Was having a good time kind of getting to know you before we hit the record button. And so kind of just to jump into things, you are a proud Boston College alumni. That is correct. So I have to know, is Bobby Orr the best hockey player that ever existed? I definitely was not expecting this. I don't know. When I was a kid, I was actually a big Patrick Waugh fan, just out of nowhere. But I love like the early like avalanche days. I don't know. Maybe it was like the early NHL N64 games or something. But that was always a deep place in my heart. But being a Bostonian, I'll give you the Bobby Orr thing. <laughs> I'm um, from Miami and so diehard Miami Dolphins fan, unfortunately. So all I have is 1972, which was kind of the breakout year for Bobby Orr. I had a good buddy from Mansfield kind of put me on to how great the Bruins were back then and what Bobby Orr was all about. So always fun to kind of throw that into conversations whenever I can. So proud Bostonian, you went to Boston College and you kind of got your start and your career in the solar energy sector and then went on a developer journey. So before we get to your time at Coinbase, can you just kind of give us like what your arc was? Yeah, it's, it's a really great question. And wow, you went all the way back. Yeah, so I think the common thread there has been entrepreneurship. So I got you know into founding and building companies back when I was really young, like 17, 18 years old. Taught myself how to become a developer because no one else would build my projects is the real reason. And you know, I think I made my first dollar on the internet building you know iOS apps and that sort of thing to like pay for study abroad. But it's been a long arc. But that was kind of the common theme was you know technology and entrepreneurship all the way through. And then, yeah, I definitely found my way over to Coinbase, ran Money Movements Engineering there for three and a half years. That was quite an experience from bull market to bear market, all that sort of fun in between. And then now I'm at Cordell, where I've been for roughly two years, kind of helping to build out that organization. Cool. Yeah. So I kind of want to just provide a little bit of context for the rest of the conversation by digging into a little bit of your time at Coinbase. So can you just share what years you were there that kind of paints a picture for what the industry was like? And can you share maybe broad base, like what money movements necessarily was? Were you dealing with like ACH? Or were you dealing with like the actual blockchain networks themselves? 
Great question. So I joined in 2019, which was like the tail end of that bear market, which was really an interesting time at Coinbase because it was very different than the Coinbase people know now, which is, you know, pure up into the right and the direct public list, like all that sort of thing. It was like a really challenging time because I think the 2018 cycle was just coming after the ICO mania and everything else. And people were wondering, like, is this thing really going to work? Not only like Coinbase the business, but just like as an industry, like kind of what the through line of crypto will be, will it be a flash in the pan or really be like this kind of game-changing technology? I think now we have our answer, but I think it was a lot less clear at that point. And when I joined as part of that, there was a lot of opportunities for people to step up and to take on leadership roles in areas that weren't necessarily like kind of the most sexy pieces of the organization. And one of that was the platform and the platform, particularly like the money movements piece, is all of the money on and off platform. So that's interacting with the crypto networks and things on one side, that's ACH on the other side, and that's also handling all the on-platform buy, sell, trade, et cetera. So it's a really multifaceted experience. And there's a lot of hard things that go behind the scenes of operating an exchange of Coinbase's scale. Like we expect these things when we put money in or whatever, we expect it just to get to the account essentially nearly instantaneously. But there's so many thousands of lines of code that powers that and makes that a reliable experience. On one side, just building the money on, but then also getting the money off and interacting with the blockchains is also very non-trivial because each blockchain has its own quarks and its own unique pieces that you have to deal with. And depending on the blockchain, some are more reliable than others, I think is the, you know, the political way to put that. <laughs> and, and with some of those intricacies, like there's a lot of risk that's involved, right? Like if blockchains have reorgs and you're not handling these sorts of things, or if you have double credits, there's real money on the line. And that's kind of the, the unsung hero of a lot of these centralized exchanges, which again, are commonly vilified, rightfully so in some cases, and in other cases, they're not. There's a lot of work to be able to onboard, you know, the amount of people that they've done. And again, there's been lots of bad and good that's happened in that space, but it's a really tough task. And it was really awesome to kind of cut my teeth there. Yeah, that's really cool. Can you just give us like a scale for the types of funds that were under your umbrella of product management? Like I know Coinbase is probably the most popular exchange in the US, but maybe, I don't know, for some reason, our international audience doesn't understand the sheer amount of funds that are going in and out of the centralized exchange. So can you just like slap us with what that number was? Yeah. So I think if you include the on-platform, like the existing trading and that sort of stuff, you get somewhere around like a trillion dollars a year at peak. I mean, like when you go to peak ship mania and things of that nature, like the sheer scale is wild. Like you get to, you know, hundreds of thousands of requests per minute to be able to put in like trade orders, not just like web requests. The web requests, you get to tens of millions and that sort of thing. But very hard to be able to do that reliably and consistently and limited amount of risk throughout the entire process. I'm from the crypto class of 2017 when Coinbase would regularly shut down whenever a China FUD came out or Bitcoin was partnering with another government or some crazy thing that would send the market. Mooning back then, that's really interesting. And I kind of want to keep the Coinbase relationship in mind for our listeners as we move forward because that's going to be a really cool tangent to pull on why you left a centralized behemoth to go towards the decentralized industry. But maybe before we get to that point of the conversation, can you just give us a little bit of context as to when the first time you heard about crypto was? Was it Bitcoin's white paper? Was it the ETH DAO hack? What do you first remember hearing about this brand new digital asset class? What kind of like time frame was that? Yeah, so I believe it was mid-2010, actually. It depends on when I had the directed reading. And there were two of us in the directed reading class, but 
we actually had a professor that was teaching us. It was just a few of the students. It was like essentially a way to hack around taking a real class. You would have a professor like kind of go really deep with you on a specific subject. And the thing that we were really interested on was web security and just security in general is kind of what it got brought into. And he would give us these amazing readings on these different things. And one of the readings was the Bitcoin white paper. And I remember reading it and I had no idea what was going on. Like various people at the industry have said, like the moment they read the white paper, like everything made total sense to them. I admittedly was not one of those people initially. And I didn't really understand it, but he had given us the analysis from a very like academic perspective of like why it was interesting, Byzantine fault tolerance, like kind of all that sort of thing. And one of the other people like immediately bought some Bitcoin because they kind of got it. And of course I didn't. I don't think for me it really clicked until I started to understand Ethereum, which was around 2016. All of a sudden, everything started to click, not just the Ethereum, like digital oil at that point or whatever, but then also Bitcoin clicked with kind of the store value thesis and digital gold. But that was kind of the arc. And yeah, I wish I could go back to my former self and be like, just start here <laughs> versus, you know, that five years in between. Yeah, I know all too well what you're talking about. The first time that kind of Bitcoin really soaked into my brain was probably quarter four, 2013. And I used the excuse for not learning more, not speculatively investing more because I was a broke grad student. And four and a half years later, all I wanted to do was go full time into this space. So I share a very similar experience with you. I don't think that that's unique to both of us, really. So when you had your aha moment in 2016-ish, you were still kind of on your own entrepreneurial journey through your own career path, and you didn't end up at Coinbase for another three years. So what was that three-year period like? Were you trying to get your businesses off the ground and just looking into this crypto stuff on the side? Were you actively trying to get involved with other blockchain-oriented projects on the side? What was that in-between period between your aha moment and then when you ended up at Coinbase? Totally. So there's definitely a learning piece. And I've always been kind of like a more longer term first principles type person where it's like, could you see yourself doing this for the rest of your career or like for 10 years? And the moment that you get off that path, you're probably misaligned. And you need to ask yourself that question every so often to make sure that you're still kind of headed towards your North Star. And at that point, I wasn't like fully convinced. I really thought, you know, since other businesses where I was going to spend the majority of my time. In between there, I actually found myself at a company called Omni. And as part of Omni, they actually, their lead investor was Ripple. And I actually got very involved with like bringing Ripple into their platform. It was a really cool idea that you'd have like this streaming payment marketplace of goods and storage. And as part of that, I also was partially like a full-time crypto trader with some of the funds that were invested. And that was wildly stressful. <laughs> like there's stress and there's like full-time crypto trading stress. And that company actually got acquired by Coinbase. So that is actually kind of how I found myself there. And it was part of like Coinbase folklore at this point, but they didn't actually know what to do with me because they were like, well, you could be a trader for us or you could, you know, kind of go back to engineering. Like, what do you want to do? And they were like, we've never really seen a case like you because that's a really weird vibe. And I was like, no, engineering is where I want to be like for the long term. I don't need to lose, you know, my remaining hair. That's awesome. So you got Aqua hired by Coinbase. I guess this is a tangent, but that's a really interesting thing you just brought up. So we're talking about integrating Ripple 2016, 17, 18, 19-ish. And today we have new integrations with banks. We have these ETFs that are being proposed. The rails to connect the crypto and traditional financial rails are being built. I guess you could call 
them bridges. So what are the differences between the times when you were integrating Ripple into Omni and today, four to six years later, how is it wildly different from back then? So I definitely want to caveat that there's way more work to be done than where we are today, but we're still like worlds and worlds closer than we were. And I think like even going back to some of the product design sessions and that sort of thing, when you thought about onboarding to be able to get someone to even be able to like rent a scooter or something like that, you know, using Ripple, okay, well, now you have to download like some wallet or you have to send XRP to like some random address. Like there was a lot of friction there and it was very unusual consumer behavior. And I remember, I mean, one of the nice parts about Ripple is it settles incredibly fast. There were some pieces that made for like a pretty decent user experience as part of it, but it was still pretty clunky. And when you have to download other apps to use another app, like that's a lot of friction as part of the process. And that was definitely one of the issues was like actually getting it into a spot where you could get, you know, millions or, you know, hundreds of millions of people using it. And when I think today, we've seen so many advances. Like one of the things I'm most bullish on is account abstraction. The account abstraction is so interesting for so many ways. And even if you just like take the most minor part, which is just to be able to pay gas fees for users, like it obviously there's all these other benefits like login with some other OAuth provider and that sort of stuff. But just that piece alone is huge. Customers are not used to paying for things upfront as part of whatever they're, you know, like that's just not how anything works. And if you have to go acquire things to then use a product, like all those barriers are like slowly getting broken down. And again, there's a lot of work to be done, but we're worlds farther. And I think I'm watching the wallet space, you know, very closely because I think that there's so much evolution that'll happen there over the next nine to 18 months. Yeah, I agree. So not a huge proportion, but some of our listeners are kind of like Eli5 type folks. So you mentioned account abstraction. So like if my mom is listening to this episode, can you say why that's so important? Because I always like to say that the internet is something everybody uses every day, but I can't tell you how the protocol operates, TCP IP. So that's what mainstream adoption is going to look like for cryptocurrencies and blockchain networks. You mentioned OAuth. I know why that's important, but could you just, again, like elevator pitch, very elementary level, what that means, why account abstraction is so important and how anybody who is just kind of technology simple, I guess is the best way to put it, will be able to use these networks. When I think about wallets in general, like self-custody is the future. We should all strive to have self-custody. That's one of the original crypto tenants that I think we should all keep near and dear. And that's very important. So like with that is the premise of not trying to lean into some of the technologies that would get rid of self-custody. When you think about account abstraction, most folks have encountered like the dreaded seed phrase, if you will, which is, you know, these 12 words and it's really strange. You've never seen anything like that previously in your life. And you get some of these really cryptic warnings that are like, hey, if you don't save this, all your money's gone. There's nothing we can do to help you. And that in and of itself is a very scary consumer experience that like we're just not used to. We're used to forget password. And I think if you were to think about what was some of Coinbase's early competitive advantage is it was essentially forget password for your posted wallet. But again, that goes against some of the, you know, kind of self-custody nature. And then on the OAuth side, OAuth is logging with Facebook, Google, et cetera, right? And kind of the premise here is, can you make it as easy to get a crypto wallet as you can log in with Facebook or Google, et cetera? And that's the kind of level of consumer experience that people are looking for. And whether or not it's with account abstraction or other mechanisms, it's really making it really approachable for everyone. There's also some cool pieces in terms of like gasless transactions or no fee transactions and that sort of stuff that are also part of the spec. 
Yeah, that's really cool. I would like to clarify that the majority of our audience is probably quite technical, but every now and then, like I have friends and family who listen and sometimes they say like, whoa, that went over my head. So I appreciate the Eli five kind of breaking it down. And you touched on a few key themes that I really want to pull out of this conversation. You're talking about account abstraction. You're talking about self-custody, these very important things that decentralized networks and owning our own identity can offer us, owning our own identity data, uh, access to digital assets and the such. So you were working in Coinbase, a behemoth of a centralized institution in the blockchain space, and you left. You took a chance on a scrappy DAO that's building a blockchain network. So I think there are probably some hardcore crypto ethos that maybe kind of drew you away from Coinbase. So can you just walk us through what that was like, that process for you to say, I want to leave Coinbase where I'm working in the engineering space that I really enjoy. This was the place I wanted to be and to kind of jump and become an initial contributor to Cordell. Yeah, happy to. So I think when I characterized some of the things that brought me from Coinbase over to Core is one, Core has an amazing team of, you know, 40 contributors all around the world who I love working with, you know, every single day. But it was also this kind of shift from seeing Web 2.5 very closely and wanting to get really into Web 3. And that sounds a little trite from what people say, but now having experienced both, they really are quite different and they have their own host of challenges. I think one of my kind of superpowers at the moment is being able to have seen both and kind of understanding how these things interact together because there's so much to learn from both sides. But that was definitely what the driver was, was that I think there was so much more that I think could be done with crypto. And I thought doing that on the issuer side was the path towards much higher amount of impact in the shortest period of time. And I think that's something that's very ideological, like very important to me is when I think back on like, what was the original use case of Bitcoin and this sort of thing, you know, 10 years or 15 years ago now, it's like helping people in centralized, potentially authoritarian governments, it's unstable currencies, like it's really doing that sort of help. And there are 6 billion people that have, you know, mobile phone subscriptions out there. And there's, you know, 100 million people that have ever, you know, had a wallet. And it's like, as an industry, like regardless of what blockchain, you know, people's favorites are, we haven't penetrated that at all. There's just still so much work to be done. And a lot of the centralized exchanges have the biggest footprint by far, but they're not quite going after maybe exactly the same things as some of the projects are. Yeah, that's really cool that you bring that up. And so I want to talk about the blockchain trilemma. And I think that some of the things that people can relate to is the housing trilemma. When we're going out to buy a house, there are three things. You can have space, you can have location to amenities, and you can have cost. Trade what you want, and you only take two out of the three. So blockchain's trilemma is scalability, decentralization, and security. In such a nascent technological industry that we're in right now, each of these trade-offs has some things that are really difficult to deal with. So when you were looking at going into the space and what project you should work at, how did you take this trilemma into your perspective when deciding to finally land at Core? Yeah, so I think the trilemma is very interesting. It's kind of been popularized many times over the past five years in particular. And when the trilemma is discussed, I think it really needs to be held true that all three points of the triangle, if you will, which is how it's commonly depicted, are equally important. If you look back on most major projects that have launched since you know 2017, etc., 
they've all been willing to compromise on one aspect, and that's been decentralization. And it's in favor of scalability. Like if we think about the TPS wars and all that stuff over the last, you know, five plus years, that's been part of the triangle that's always come in. And Cordao's viewpoint on that, that I, you know, was very aligned with was that that's the only thing you can't trade off. And you can't trade off any of them, but being able to compromise and decentralization is so difficult because all of a sudden you're really not that unstoppable, uncensorable technology that you need to be to really hit the scale of what the overall industry really needs to achieve. And that's actually why Cordell, part of the consensus mechanism comes from proof of work. And that proof of work is Bitcoin's proof of work that gets brought over in this trustless relay mechanism because Bitcoin is and likely always will be the most decentralized network. And when we talk about the powering from Bitcoin, well, over 40% of the Bitcoin network is already delegating their blocks to core. We've started to figure out some of that incentive alignment, and there's a lot of work still to be done there. But that decentralization really is paramount to the core DAO into the community. Yeah, that's really cool. So something that is really intriguing about Core DAO is this multi proof of work, proof of stake consensus mechanism. So before we go into specifically what Satoshi Plus is, maybe can you just share with our listeners in your perspective, what are the strengths and weaknesses of proof of work and proof of stake? Oh, man. I'm going to get all the maxis on all sides, all angry. So I think at like a very, very high level, right? On the proof of work side, you've got you know extreme security and the highest levels of security there. And energy is what's the input there as to part of the, the production, et cetera. But on the large trade-off or large con, if you will, is the scalability function that comes with that. And then on the other side, you've got proof of stake. And again, there's different, different varieties of proof of stake, but let's call it like the common variety of proof of stake is... You've got higher amounts of scalability, but maybe more centralization. And you also don't have this use of energy as what's valuing the creation of blocks. So each has its own religious elements, if you will, on both sides. But none of them are perfect, right? Like each has different trade-offs. And in crypto, what's happened historically, kind of one of two camps, which is either if it's not perfect, like we shouldn't use anything and like why try it all? And then on the other side, you've got like, no, mine is better and yours is terrible. And we've seen kind of that proliferate. I think we're going to start to see more and more groups like Core that are actually saying, no, there's benefits to all of these. And let's take the good parts and kind of slam them together and build these hybrid mechanisms that allow us to address some of the trade-offs and weaknesses, very similar to what you see in Web 2, right? Like when you think about Web 2, most of the technology starts in one place, gets refined in another place. Like that's just how kind of these evolutions operate. And it's very odd that in you know Web3 for the last like 10 years or so, whatever, there's a lot of like not invented here syndrome, which is really, I think, hurt some of the evolution in the space. Yeah. One of my things that I'm really proud of, politically speaking, is that I piss off the left and the right. So I must be thinking accurately. And you brought this up. So I'm wondering if indeed you say it in jest, but has CoreDAO managed to kind of piss off the maxis in both camps? Because from my perspective, that probably means that the team is walking the correct line. That's a really difficult question to answer. I'd say as of now, like we're doing a decent job of staying in the middle for what it is. And I think like overall crypto as like loud as some of these folks are on Twitter, I think we're starting to see Maxiism like die off a little bit in a healthy way. And I think had Core launched at a different time, I think it would have gotten a lot more Maxi attention than it currently has. And I think what we're also seeing is some of these like former Maxis starting to be able to see the longer term picture. 
And I think a great example of that is the mining hash that's currently on core, which is again around you know, 40%. A lot of those folks were diehard Bitcoiners for a very long time that are now actually asking questions like, oh, maybe if we have other exogenous funding sources, it allows us to invest more in Bitcoin. Like As long as these aren't opposing forces and having had many of those conversations, these different groups, like you'd be surprised at how many of these folks actually have much wider apertures then, you know, might be immediately apparent on Twitter. Yeah. And so I'm curious if like the addition of like support for ordinals earlier in the year has kind of increased the rate at which these conversations with the converted you're having. Couldn't agree more. I use that example very frequently. I think whether you view BRC20s or ordinals as truly things that will help keep Bitcoin be able to survive on just transaction fees or whatever is like a different question. But I think what that was really showing was people want more utility out of Bitcoin. And it's like there's hundreds of billions in latent assets that are waiting to be used, whether it's in like some sort of Bitcoin-centric DeFi product or on a chain like Core. Like there's so much opportunity there. But I do think that helped break down the wall. And like I give a lot of credit to the people that figured out how to make Taproot do that, if you will, because it helped convert a lot of formerly like staunch people to say, wait a second, Bitcoin allows this. You know, we're not adding new things to Bitcoin to support these use cases. And historically, that's been like that fine line, right, where it's like adding to Bitcoin is very, very difficult. It's an ossified base layer, which in many ways I think is correct. But I think that really was kind of like this Cambrian explosion, if you will. Yeah, I agree. You know, we're seeing NFT projects migrate over to Bitcoin because they can now. And when I was at ETH Denver earlier this year, I'm not like sitting here saying that, you know, Taproot's going to save the Bitcoin network, but we are viewing a halving coming up and that's going to put pressure on how miners are going to be able to subsidize their own costs. And so at ETH Denver earlier this year, there was still a lot of friction for developers to build on the Bitcoin network. So they're about a half a decade behind Ethereum because Ethereum had smart contract functionality baked in at the beginning. But this is kind of a philosophical question that I want to pick your brain about because I was having this conversation the other day and like when we think about technology, we're dependent on the companies that operate them. So like Ring, if I'm using Ring so that I can view who's ringing my doorbell and make sure that I don't have burglars coming to my house in the middle of the night, what happens if Ring goes out of business? Is my unit still going to be operational? Am I still going to be able to access all the videos that Ring had stored? And when it comes to like programming and protocols and infrastructure, I can't help but think of programming languages that exist today, but nobody knows how to use them really like COBOL. So applying this logic to proof of work and proof of stake, are these consensus mechanisms, long-term protocols, are these things that are really going to be able to survive and stand the test of time? Or are we still kind of maybe in an iterative phase where maybe we haven't found the right consensus mechanism and the right protocol that can indeed outlast people, places, things? So I'm obviously biased when I answer this question for everyone at home. But I think like Satoshi Plus is a good example of this evolution where it's trying to combine these amazing technologies in like a one plus one equals three type scenario. But I do think proof of work and proof of stake are here to stay. I think they're both ossified. You'll see more and more development and improvements. But I think is like 
general civil resistance mechanism that they are. Like, I don't think they're going to go anywhere. When I think about blockchains generally, these protocols actually, a lot of their value is in shared state. That is the underlying value of a lot of these. And the products that they offer are actually block space. And over time, like block space will likely trend more and more towards like infinite, right? So I think it's going to be pretty interesting to watch that all develop as time goes on. But I think there's like a social contract that has now been formed that these ecosystems need to run forever. And maybe there will be some interesting like consolidation or some hybridization, like things that will happen as time goes on. But I do think that's part of like the social and technical contract at this point. Cool. So I'm just going to go out on a limb and assume you subscribe to the multi-chain thesis. So as you're thinking like this, you know, there's going to be Bitcoin, there's going to be Ethereum, there's going to be these Cosmos app chains, there's going to be Core, there's going to be tons and tons of different blockchain networks. The vast array of these networks that we're going to have in the future, how are these going to help solidify blockchain as a space? Like, don't we want multiple networks, not just one to rule them all? What's kind of your personal opinion on this? And then how does the rest of the CoreDAO team members think about this? Yeah, so I think my viewpoint is mostly aligned. I'm sure there are some outliers out there. But in general, the viewpoint is mostly that the space as time goes on, it's going to be a one of N versus N of one. Like, I think when I look at most of the major chains out there, I don't necessarily expect most of them to be there, you know, 10, 20 years from now, because I think a lot of these haven't been approached, which is much of a long term thesis, which is what I think is required. I think, again, we've seen amazing technological developments, etc. But I think as time goes on, more and more of that will get commoditized. And I think one of the biggest differentiators will be community. And then also will be specialization, like app chains are a great example, where like, derivative exchanges and perpetual exchanges on top of app chains make a lot of sense because you've got different guarantees that you want to provide your users. And I think we'll see some specialization that way. But I think on the more general purpose blockchain space, it really does become all about community. And I think we haven't seen anyone really hit community scale. Like Ethereum definitely has the, the largest advantage when it comes to the amount of people that have interacted with it, et cetera. But if we think of the overall population of the Earth, we haven't even scratched the surface yet. And I do think whether it's you know 10 years from now, 20 years from now, et cetera, we will get there. And if you think about Facebook, I mean, Facebook, I think, just crossed like 3 billion users or something, which is just unbelievable. Like just kudos to those folks. And it took 20 years. And I think that's kind of the time scale with which we need to be evaluating these things. And it's you know too early to say who's won or who's lost. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. And I want to take a sidestep because we're both Americans operating in the crypto and blockchain space here before we jump further into core DAO. So it's no surprise to anybody who's been paying attention to anything regulatory at all this past year that there's been a little bit of adversarial sort of actions toward this industry, possibly for good reason because of 2022 and the shady actors and the collapses of other blockchain networks. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the perspective of what it's like to work in this industry full-time here in the States when we're talking about this brain drain that's occurring because folks are being forced to go offshore. What's the regulatory outlook for you here as a builder and how has that changed from maybe the types of conversations you were having around the water cooler at Coinbase during the end of the previous bear? So I'd say there's definitely a common theme, I think, that's gone from the beginning of like my time there to today, which is regardless of what jurisdiction, whether it's the US, whether it's Europe and wherever you're building, 
everyone just wants clarity. And I think we've seen some interesting strides in the EU and the UK recently. And I think we'll continue to see more clarity, hopefully, develop. And with that clarity, I think operators around the world will be able to figure out what rules they can play by and what they have to adhere to. And that's really what folks want. I think the whole like lawless crypto times of, you know, your are pretty gone at this point. And I don't think most people are even yearning for that in any way, shape or form. Of course, there are some people out there that are, but I think those are pretty limited. Yeah, absolutely. So Cordao, you left Coinbase. I went through something similar. I was working for various different governments. I used to be an urban planner. I had a cushy government salary job, great benefits, all that stuff. And then I jumped full-time into what we call Web3 today. And I had to learn how to be an independent contractor and all these things of my own, figure out how to take care of my own healthcare, figure out how to pay my own taxes, all of this stuff. But now we're seeing the advent of DAOs like Opolis that act as co-ops that can provide this sort of services that an HR department would provide at like a centralized corporate entity. So for your transition into CoreDAO, what was that like leaving a company that provided you these benefits and then going into the DAO and having to figure all this out yourself? Did the DAO provide any support for you? Did they provide any resources? Are you guys collaborating with independent entities here in the U.S.? to help provide some of these benefits that a centralized company might provide. Just can you share a little bit more of what that transition was like and how a traditional worker can become a Web3 worker? Yeah, so also just for clarity, Cordao is like global group of contributors. There's a few of us that happen to be in the US, but there is no US presence. It's actually totally ex-US. But when it comes to getting all the pieces stood up, I've now done this many times <laughs> with like several different businesses. And it's always a challenge, but it's definitely harder in Web3 because you don't have the same level of infrastructure, right? Like if you need benefits and things like that, you can't just call Sequoia and some of these like classic you know, providers. So it's definitely challenging in that way. What I would say is like, we've got an amazing team. And as part of that, we all try to work together to figure out how to make it easy. And I think in general, like one of the simplifying factors that was happened early on was just decision to use stable coins for everything, right? Like it just made things much easier. But there's a whole bunch of unsolved problems where the unfortunate answer is, well, you'll just have to like remit an invoice or something for whatever this costs in the real world, because there isn't a good way to like pay for health insurance and that sort of thing. We've evaluated a lot of landscape of DAO tooling providers, and some of them are truly phenomenal. I think a lot of others have kind of a ways to go, but it's something that we're evaluating really closely because we would love it to solve our own problems, if you would. Yeah, I mean, I'm not affiliated with them at all, but Opolis is really leading the way here, at least in the US, with like co-op-based services for Web3 businesses and individual contractors. So that probably is on your radar. But we were talking earlier that I run my bread and butter working on the Neo blockchain. I've been covering this ecosystem since 2018. And so I ask myself this question all the time. So I hope it doesn't come off as sort of an attack or anything like that. But how do you view taking the Herculean task of building a brand new blockchain and gaining mass adoption. My perspective is, is 
you know, today you got to kind of be a little bit crazy to launch a brand new blockchain because for whatever supporters are out there, it is those diehard folks who are like Bitcoin only, Ethereum only. Now we're starting to see the advent of EVMs and EVM L2s and alternative networks that use like Cosmos-based SDKs. So we're seeing this decentralization of decentralized networks take effect. But like, what's your perspective? What gave you the confidence to say, I'm going to go out there and build this brand new blockchain utilizing this revolutionary consensus mechanism. And we're just going to go YOLO crypto and try to make this happen. (laughs) I don't know if that's the way I'd describe it. I'd say, there was a large group of contributors versus like buy blockchain. But that group of contributors really kind of saw an opportunity, if that makes sense. And it was to really be reactionary to a lot of the stuff that we had seen previously that, you know, there was this appetite to do better. So one of the big differentiators with Core was it was entirely self-funded. And that was important because at launch, there was this desire to have a large group of owners as users of the network, not an adversarial relationship between like, early folks and then, you know, the users or whatever. And seeing that done wrong in so many ways, it was like, that was table stakes. Another that we already, you know, kind of chatted about was making sure it was really decentralized from day one. That was so important because again, we've seen this trade-off so many times and having that trade-off, you know, just isn't good or accretive long-term. And then the final piece, which was the other like kind of gap in the market, if you will, was that no one's built a truly web two scale community. And that's the long term where, you know, at least my personal view is where a lot of the value will accrue is by who can onboard in our case, you know, we're trying to get to a billion. That's a long road, but it's who can get there. That's really what's going to determine, you know, kind of the long term success of these ecosystems. And then finally, I think everyone on the core team has a very deep belief in the true crypto roots of like, this is freedom preserving technology. There's so much power here that we've barely scratched the surface of. And when I think about things that I want to spend, I guess now, like the second half of my career on, if you will, it's only stuff that can really make a dent in the universe. There's not a lot of opportunities out there where you can confidently say, if I fulfill my mission, which is just part of this overall mission for Cordao, that you know there actually is some actual measurable improvement for the overall good. And it sounds really lofty, but I think those are kind of the size of the opportunities that I want to be attacking at this point and that the core chain thinks they can make a dent into. Yeah, I mean, it's ethics that kind of brought me into this field as well. And the same thing that interested me in urban planning is I wanted to go into a space where I can die and 200 years later, something I worked on can still be providing public good and benefit to people. And initially, I thought that the route to do that was by planning cities and helping develop urban areas. But really onboarding and banking the unbanked is something that really kind of got me excited about the crypto and blockchain space in general. So I really appreciate and empathize with hearing that ethos and being ethos driven in that way. So you did mention that the network is decentralized and decentralization is a spectrum. Everything's a spectrum when it comes to the blockchain space. So what does that look like for the core network? What is decentralized? Are we talking like 50 validators or are we talking like thousands of validators, complete distribution of the token, developers from all over the world, various different developer languages so that the programming can be more robust? What are the various levels of decentralization that Core kind of really prides itself on and offers? 
So decentralization is definitely a spectrum, right? And there's no perfect answer to like, are you decentralized or are you not? I think anyone would love to be able to wave a magic wand and be able to get that answer if you would. But I think how I personally view it, and this is where the dual consensus mechanisms get interesting. One side, Cordao has millions of stakers around the world that are all participating. And this is why delegated proof of stake was chosen versus, you know, like proof of stake or something you'd see in Ethereum. Or even 32 ETH, where to some folks that is nothing, but in a large part of the world, that's an insurmountable sum. And it's making sure that everyone contribute, even if they have, you know, 0.1 core. And it's really important to just make sure that everyone can participate because that's how you get true representation. And to balance that out on the other side, you get the proof of work, which is bringing over all the decentralization of the Bitcoin miners, which again is like so important for proof of work, which is ensuring that anyone can mine Bitcoin. Again, probabilistically, the odds that you produce a block are very low, but in aggregate, of course, that's why pools exist, et cetera. But that's really kind of the balance of both sides. And when the validators get elected, you actually look at the hybrid score that takes into account the amount of delegated stake and the amount of delegated hash. And that's our best answer as of yet of how you blend the two together to ensure that you're operating in a more decentralized way. And I'm sure more ideas will come out here. We'll continue to refine like it's a very evolutionary space. But those were some of the most important tenets to building the system. Yeah. So does that mean that Satoshi Plus is actually a protocol that communicates directly with the Bitcoin network? I would assume that there is an EVM compatible sort of DPoS protocol that Core has built on its own. But is Satoshi Plus like specifically speaking with the Bitcoin network as part of its consensus? So we have an actor in our system called Relayers. And what Relayers do is they run an on-chain light client and they bring over the Bitcoin blocks. The Bitcoin blocks that are delegated have some data written as part of the OP return field that says, hey, where do I want my delegation to go? And then where do I want my fees to accrue to? They put that into the block in the Bitcoin chain. So you can actually see that on any Bitcoin block explorer. The relayer's job is to bring that over. There's an actor called verifiers that can see if anyone's being malfeasant. If they are, they can, of course, slash the relayer. But that process runs on a one-week delay to account for things like reorgs. But there is this direct tie-in where it's relaying these things over, and that's how the data comes over in a trustless fashion. Yeah, that's really interesting that you have kind of a built-in week-long waiting period in case there are any reorgs or maybe even adversarial splits like we saw with the size wars in 2015, 16, 17. So I'm wondering also if reorgs are an issue, what about block times and finality? How does Satoshi Plus take in the block times and finality of Bitcoin and then also utilize the quicker speeds at which DPoS can offer? Finality, because it operates in the one week delay, of course, Bitcoin's probabilistic finality, but that's more you're past any sort of like reorg at that point feasibly, unless you maybe like nation state attack or something of that nature. But the individual like producing nine minutes or 10 minutes or whatever won't actually impact it because it just brings over the delegated hash. And like most engineers, it's like this is a solution that's kind of blunt, but does solve the problem in like a pretty good way, the same way that different centralized exchanges just wait 30 blocks for Ethereum. It's like you don't need to wait 30 blocks. It's just an easy answer to, you know, try to prevent some of these nastier failure modes. Because that's just an input into the system, on the DPoS side, as you rightly pointed out, you can be very performant, right? Because on that side, you've got this group of validators that can you know, operate in a classic kind of proof-of-stake fashion, which allows you to get to you know, hundreds of TPS, et cetera. 
Cool. So are you guys going out and speaking with Bitcoin hash mining farms? Are you speaking with individual miners or collectives of miners? Or are you just kind of tapping into the network specifically? What does that relationship look like? Yeah, so it's been both inbound and outbound to be totally clear, but we talk mostly with mining pools because the mining pools are what actually produce the blocks in most of these systems. And those are our main points of contact. And they've been phenomenal to work with. And one of the, again, big differentiators with cores and these other networks is cores isn't merge mining. In a lot of these scenarios, you've actually seen these adversarial relationships between like the other L1 and Bitcoin and merge or like a layer, et cetera that actually creates these adversarial incentives for the mining pools, et cetera, to censor you or to do all these other things, just kind of take your rewards. And what we've found so far, it's actually been a very symbiotic relationship. And we've seen more and more hash rate come on as part of that. And we're continuing looking to find ways to get these mining pools more and more involved. Awesome. So we have the participation of mining pools. And then on the consensus or governance perspective, there are two different participants in the way I'm seeing it. We have the core token holders who vote on the validators. And then we have the validators themselves who validate the network and make sure that proper amount of transactions were approved in the previous block. So we kind of touched on this earlier, but how many users does Core have? How many people are actually delegating their Core to validators? And then also, how many validators are on the network? So there's 21 validators as of now. However, we expect that to expand as time goes on. And that was kind of like a initial set that gives you some very nice security properties. In terms of the number of stakers, there's millions of stakers around the world. We expect that number to continue to grow, particularly as more and more wallets integrate Core. That's just a great onboarding funnel. And we've got amazing partners like OKX Wallet, Mises Wallet, several others that are all enabling core staking directly from their app, which is fantastic because it just is one click and you're off to the races. And that's another one of the nice pieces of DPoS. And then in terms of the number of users, users in Web3 is always tricky. I'm a big caveater because I you know, don't want to get accused of anything on the internet. But in terms of it, it's similar to around like 100,000, I think, daily active wallets last I checked on CoreScan. Again, we would love to watch that continue to grow as your audience, et cetera, hopefully, you know, onboards through one of our amazing wallet partnerships. Yeah, I appreciate the caveat because people could just be doing Sybil attacks and one person could own a thousand wallets. So it's always nice to kind of call that out. But I do want to give a little bit of praise where it's due. The CoreDAO Twitter account has 1.9 million users, which is a ton. So I'm really curious to hear, because I'm really interested in this personally, what was the community building process like? What is the sort of philosophy that goes into cultivating such a large community? And how did the team kind of get to these massive amounts of users across various different socials? So I'd say it was a multi-pronged approach, one of which was there was a partnership with the Satoshi app. And the Satoshi app was a Web2 app that helped kind of get the core message and the core story out and has the ability to kind of grow in Web 2 space versus Web 3 space. I would personally expect it to be something that more chains will do as there's just so many more Web 2 users than Web 3 users out there. And that was really where it kind of began, was like kind of giving people the core story, talking about the ties into Bitcoin and all of those things that are so true. And again, at that piece was you know more idea stage. But a lot of that was that community building to get the group of true believers, like the thousand true fans, if you will, and then that story, like you know, most things in crypto, start to move through the community, right? And there's these amazing networks all around the world of people who hear this story and get excited 
about things that could, you know, potentially be the next Bitcoin or the next Ethereum or something that like has these properties where you're not trying to say you're better than everyone else. You're trying to say that there's this awesome common ground that we can all find to, you know, really unlock crypto's true value. And that was something that really resonated with people all over the world. And so far, you know, it's been really exciting. I think we're 0.01% of the way through like the community building that we need to do. But I think when you look at the strength of our, you know, 100,000 Discord followers or millions of people on Twitter, there really is this deep level of engagement and people who are really excited about building this community that is very principled, oriented and driven. It's a real honor to be part of that community. That's awesome. Based off of what I gathered, Core launched Mainnet earlier this year, maybe late last year. And there was also an airdrop that happened earlier this year. So how many users were airdropped the Core tokens? Were you seeing a lot of this growth in community before the airdrop, before even Mainnet launched and people were really buying into the vision? Or have you seen that growth kind of explode since the launch of Mainnet and the airdrop? And now that we're starting to see a little bit of activity on the network? Yeah, so I think like most new launches and that sort of stuff, you see lots and lots of growth up into launch, and then you see kind of a little bit of the trough of sorrow, and then you continue to kind of go up into the right type thing. But as part of it, there was a lot of excitement for the airdrop. It was possibly the biggest smart contract interaction of its time when it first launched in February of this year. And there was about 2 million addresses that were part of this airdrop. And it was done simultaneously all around the world, which is, again, one of the beautiful parts of smart contracts. But it was really cool for the users to get their tokens in this way for the story they had been you know, hearing about and, and trying to understand. And now we're the first owners of the network. And I think one of the most encouraging signs was the amount of people that immediately staked those tokens. And a lot of those folks are still staking those tokens because there's that ethos alignment in governance and all this potential value of what the network can be. The network itself has done a great job so far, but there's so much work to be done. And you're seeing people with their stakes showing that long-term support. Yeah. Has there been any sort of like governance proposals put forth yet, changing parameters of how the network is configured or anything like that? Or is it still just kind of in the staking phase right now? So in the staking phase as of now, but that is something we expect to see later this year. Cool, cool. So launching a brand new network, you have a lot of users, which is great because now we can build dApps on top of it and we can start having core believers using these decentralized applications. So what are kind of the activities that are taking place in the network and what are the kind of dApps that you're seeing right now? So we're seeing dApps of all shapes and sizes. I think one of the most interesting areas that we're seeing that's like, some of these are in like kind of the pre-launch, but I've seen quite a few of them come across are a lot of games. And the games are super exciting because like these are actually fun Web2 games that people are adding crypto pieces to versus the opposite, which are like GameFi and whatever else, which are interesting in a lot of ways, but I don't think are usually amazing user experiences. And in some of the pilots that they're running with the community, they've been like very successful. So it's really excited to watch that. I think there'll be some pretty cool launches later this year. I think a lot of the on-chain activity that's not staking, et cetera, so far is in some of these early DeFi protocols. One of the cool things that, you know, as this podcast is now released, is SushiSwap actually just launched on Core, as well as the first borrow lend, Aquarius. We're actually starting to see a lot of those fundamental Lego blocks come into place. And those Lego blocks then allow all the other cool kind of DeFi primitives to then launch on top. And it's been awesome watching that. And one of the things that the core community does a little different is we also have the core academy, 
which is trying to educate users on how to interact with these protocols. What are the risks associated? Like, what should you understand before you get involved? And that's really important to be able to educate the community. When we look at it holistically, the participation rate is a function of like they're getting ready and understanding. And that's actually really important as like a, are we helping to serve our community? Absolutely. And I think that's really cool to just kind of acknowledge that we're starting to see the Lego blocks that will eventually be used for this composability to build out other DeFi, NFT, you name it, DAO type of activities moving forward. So I'm wondering as we wrap up, if you could share a little bit more about the Satoshi Mining app. I have a note here that I just wanted to hear about it because it was interesting while I was digging into the things that Core is all about. Yes, the Toshi Mining app, I think the way to think about it is like a news aggregator, price checker, et cetera, that also has kind of like these airdrop platform mechanics built into it is kind of the way to think about it. And Core was really the two work hand in hand to kind of define the product and the solution, if you would, to like go together. And that's why it was pretty critical in Satoshi app core. You can see how there is like kind of some relation there. But that was definitely part of the initial community onboarding. Yeah. So something that has become very apparent to me working in a blockchain ecosystem that isn't EVM L2 is that once you lose access to a bridge or centralized exchanges, then as an ecosystem, you're very much isolated. So how is Core taking this into account? What are the ways in which Core is trying to bridge to other networks to increase and implement interoperability into the way that the protocol operates and into a way that people can come in and out of the ecosystem via crypto or blockchain rails. So I'm definitely a big believer in the multi-chain thesis. And this is something that as an ecosystem was always very important. And one of the first partnerships that Dow did was actually with Layer Zero, because that was so important to be able to trustlessly communicate across different networks. And shortly after mainnet, the chain actually put out its official bridge that had connectivity into Ethereum and BNB. And I believe others you know, are going to get added soon. But it's very important to be able to you know, have this interrupt between the two chains because again the multi-chain future i personally think is you know what will play out yeah absolutely so kind of wrapping up are there any upcoming plans for cordao for developer oriented marketing initiatives are there going to be any hackathons what are the sort of outreach you're doing to onboard new devs and bring new builders into the ecosystem Phenomenal question. For new devs, definitely check out cordow.org. There's a whole bunch of documentation and give us plenty of feedback and anything that we're missing, but there really is tons of great stuff over there. The team will have presence at pretty much every major crypto conference this year, Korean blockchain, right the remainder of the year. Korean blockchain, we took a 24-9 permission list. I'm sorry, mainnet, like you name it, there'll be folks there from core. And at some of these throughout the later parts of the year, I do believe we plan to run hackathons. That is one of the areas that is what we think, you know, one of the most accretive to ecosystem building and, you know, very, very excited to meet more builders that way. I'd also give a quick plug to our ecosystem collaboration with BitGet and Mexi, which is designed to help builders from all around the world, not just in terms of funding, but in terms of resourcing, hiring, et cetera, to help bring their projects to market. Launching on Core is very different than launching on some of these other chains where you know there's not as many users or people actually interacting. And for a lot of these developers, they want to launch somewhere where people can actually use what they're building versus just build amazing technology. And we think that's one of the big differentiators. And we invite all developers to come check it out. Cool. Shout out to Maxi. We had one of the heads of their R&D development program over on the podcast. So you're in good company with fellow alumnus. So beyond developers that you and your community are clearly catered 
catering towards? What are some other types of projects or folks that you're interested in hearing from? So I say this truly is like, I would like to personally hear from everyone. I mean, there's so many amazing projects out there and I can't possibly foresee, you know, the amazing things that people are building. If I could, you know, it'd be awesome, but unfortunately I can't. But it's like, as a community, it's very welcoming to all different projects and builders of all around the world, as well as users. And again, it's not just builders that, you know, the core is trying to attract. It's trying to get people from all over the world that want to participate in this whole community. So it really is like trying to be as inclusive as possible. And there's just so many things out there that we're all excited to see. So how can people keep up to date with you or reach out to you? Or if they maybe want to just reach out to CoreDAO in general, what's the best way to do so? Yes, you can always get to me on Twitter or on Discord. And our Discord is very active. It's several hundred thousand folks now. And there's so many interesting discussions going on, as well as the great way to find other interesting dApps, because a lot of them will have their own channels, etc. So it creates a nice like jumping off point into like really getting involved. And then, of course, starting with the white paper to kind of understand all the technology is also a good use of folks' time. Perfect. Rich, it was awesome to spend an hour chatting with you. I love communicating with builders who are building from the ground up in brand new ecosystems and definitely support the vision and can empathize with the hustle and grind that it takes to get that done. So thanks for sharing an hour with us. It was awesome to hear your insights and perspectives and really can't wait to keep looking forward and keeping my ear to the ground to see the cool activity that continues to grow on the Core Network. Thanks again for having me and thanks for listening. Cheers. Well, what did you think of that conversation? I thought it was really interesting to hear about Cordell's dedication to building a community, that the airdrop earlier this year was among the largest smart contract interactions that have ever taken place on Ethereum with more than 2 million. Plus, it was great to hear that so many of those airdrops went directly to staking to validator nodes in the network. I also enjoyed touching upon the blockchain trilemma and learning more about how Cordell favors utmost decentralization in the consensus mechanism. And it was really cool to hear more about how Rich saw how the meat was made inside of Coinbase, but he opted to build toward his vision in a more decentralized manner. With that, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep NEO News Today in mind when voting for your NEO Council member as part of NEO's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.